0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, girded for Glorious battle. <laughs> Today we're talking about Minute 30, which begins with Coulson's input and ends with the other's question. Back on the show from earlier in the week, it's author Matthew Costello. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to have a
1: guest who's been on long enough or enough times that you feel like you know exactly why they picked this minute based on a single line. Which is? (laughs) We could use a little old-fashioned. All about the (laughs) Stars and Stripes for you, man. I know this is going to be an ideological minute because you're not here for a tour of wiry caves.
2: Actually, that is part of it, but it's almost a little bit more Coulson and also the structure of this minute, right? Yeah. Um, I love the camera work in the the Quinjet, right? You get the two shot and then the shot, reverse shot of the two of them talking to each other. So much
1: sincerity.
2: They're very so much sincere. sincerity, that lighting on Captain America at the end that sort of gives him almost a halo. Yeah. And then you cut to the dark, dingy terrorist basement where the Chitari are
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: doing their evil things. Um, and so it's, it, it really is a form of and function moment here that works really well. This is a wonderfully constructed um, scene change. It's a wonderfully constructed um, uh, mise-en-scene for the shot to give us Colson and Cap talking together. And it, it really is the moment when, when Colson becomes the ideological heart of the film, right? This is the moment when, you know, he wants to show Cap his trading cards. He had some input into the suit, right? <laughs> and he's, he's a fanboy, right? It's that Very moment much, when that yeah. fanboy shows up. Um, but he's not just a fanboy of Captain America. He's a fanboy of Captain America and everything Captain America represented in 1940. Yeah. Too. Right. But may not represent anymore.
0: Right, right, right. right. But,
2: so, yes, the ideological redemptive element of it, but also the way it's all constructed, I think works really well.
0: It is interesting coming in I mean this this conversation between Colson and, and Steve is a pretty interesting one. The like the dynamic between the two. It really feels as it's starting. I mean you know Coulson has felt very much fanboy from the start of this scene right and then and Steve has been kind of much more serious he's looking at the footage of Hulk and he's trying to re- get a read on everything and then the way that this scene or this minute starts of watching the two of them and yeah he's talking about how he had some um input to the modifications that they made on Captain America's uniform And it kind of plays interesting. And then just the whole idea of, like, Steve is surprised that he's going to be wearing a uniform again. And because, I mean, you know, his uniform in the Captain America, the first Avenger, definitely kind of was birthed from what he had been wearing on the stage shows. And that's kind of where that came to be. And then from the stage shows to all of the work that he had been doing in the, um in the uh films and stuff. And so he very much kind of was created as this character. And so the the idea of having this uniform, I, I I find that it's such an interesting conversation to be had at this point in the film. And then what we get from him here and then in subsequent films about him having kind of the uniform. If you're going to have any of these characters in uniform, it really is Steve over the course of the film. We'll see him in his, um, you know, the stars and stripes, you know, for the bulk of the film. And it does feel like of all the characters, he does kind of have that more old fashioned sort of feel to what they're doing with the character and the comic look that we get. I, I think that's an interesting angle to take. And also, I guess it kind of ties into this idea of Phil's logic, as far as people just might need a little old fashioned. Um, how does all of that play for the two of you, as far as the uniform and and Coulson's approach?
2: It plays well for me, right? Um, if I'm if I'm looking at this scene and thinking about Coulson, right? Mm-hmm. Coulson is Coulson's a true believer, right? He is he's a Fury minion, but he's a true believer. Like Cap was a true believer in the first film, right? He is a true believer in in we are a democratic people, and we are threatened, and we need to stop this, this sort of thing, right? But in order actually to have that happen, what happens in this film? Coulson dies. Coulson has to die. The ideological true believer has to die. And Fury manipulates his death to create sort of a myth around him that brings the others together, right? Right? He spoils the cards, right? They, they, Coulson didn't have him on him. He's, Fury's going to, to right, put blood on the cards so it looks like he was wearing them when he was shot. He's going to sort of raise fill up in this mythic way that he doesn't really exist. And in essence, he's going to build the Avengers on a lie. Hmm. So all this great defense of America is going to be built on essentially a lie about the fate of the American dreamer.
0: Well, it says a lot about the whole idea of, like, the Stars and Stripes, what Steve says. And, and it's interesting coming from him, and I guess it ties into this, what we were talking about um when we first were talking about um when Steve was in the boxing ring and the whole idea of being this man out of time and being kind of angry and everything. And he's coming into this conversation with Colson here, talking about his uniform, saying, aren't Stars and Stripes a little old-fashioned? And that, coming from him, that is really interesting to see— he is starting to understand kind of like the the change in Americanism over time, how the USA is represented in the world, a little more of a cynical view on things. And so it's interesting to see that he's kind of, there is some sense of him starting to read into that a little bit.
2: Yeah. And we'll watch his relationship to the costume, right? Throughout the series of films is very important, right? The, the, costume he wears in the first Avenger is essentially a, a leather military uniform with elements of the stage costume on it. What he wears in this film is almost identical to the stage costume in some way. When we come into the Winter Soldier, he's going to be wearing the uniform that he wears when he's Steve Rogers' super soldier and No Longer Captain America. But when he comes to the final battle against Hydra, he redawns that traditional costume. So, that traditional costume reflects, right, the moments when Steve is willing to say, yes, I'm going to fight for these things, right? That these things are still worth fighting for. But it's always tempered by the fact that he doesn't wear it all the time. And and his relationship with it is much more sophisticated, much more self-conscious than it was initially. I agree. I think, and I think that's what we see being born here.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that also goes into support that, in in the first Avenger, Steve, as our protagonist, was not our change character, right? Steve was this vessel around which all these other characters changed, right? He was the, right. the planet around everyone else's orbit. And uh, in this movie, Steve needs to change, right? Steve... Steve is in himself a vessel of change, and that uniform becomes a barometer of his ideology right and his willingness to support a cause. My big question has always been for this movie would would Steve have changed had fury not bloodied the cards, right like was there still enough? Steve cap in Steve to allow him his own journey and not build the Avengers on a lie as you say because I think what he is the sincerity that he brings here the sincerity that he brings when looking at this true fanboy this true believer is might have been enough to push him over the edge and so it it's always sort of ideologically infuriating to me that we end up with this this mess of uh, you know a, a that filthies the purity of the Avengers uh, in even insofar as it makes them more complex and interesting so
2: yeah no I I actually I think that 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 the change that occurs in cap might very well have happened without the blooding of the cards but the blooding of the cards turns that patriotism right into a, a sham at some level which is another message of the movie right right which in I mean if you Right. If you think about 2011, by that point, you know, we're eight years after the invasion of Iraq. We're eight years after right people pointing and saying, you know, if you don't do what we want, you're not being patriotic. Any opposition to what we want is unpatriotic, and it's a very anti-democratic message. And I, I, I think in some ways, it's a turning point for the whole Marvel universe, right? Because up to this point, these films have been somewhat critical of that, right? And at this moment, they start to embrace it. And by the time we hit, I don't know, Iron Man 3, right? We're, you know, full-on nationalists, right? Um, Full-on.
0: You know, it's going to
2: build an armor around the world, Ultron thing,
0: right? Yeah, that really becomes the crux of the relationship between Steve and Tony through, I mean, we'll see... Steve kind of developing in a different direction through Winter Soldier, and then, of course, it all leads to Civil War. And so, all of this is kind of this development that we're getting with the character and these, uh, you know, ideological views that, um, I suppose, to a certain extent, there was the de- the design element, element of Kevin Feige putting all of these puzzle pieces in, into place so that he could get there with these later stories, but... It is interesting to see in that moment, um, you know, as the, the as the team is formed here, I, I guess to a certain extent, it feels like this is how something like the Avengers is going to have going to be formed today in 2012, as opposed to how it potentially could have come together in 1945, you know, when Steve was fighting Hydra. And I, I suppose that there is an element of that that also comes into play.
2: Yes, I I, I think that's true. I think that's true. But I also, I I think this is that moment when we start to get that ideological muddying that's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse until we hit the mess that is Civil War. I mean, Civil War is just, oh my God, right? And everything sits there to set up sort of Endgame and Infinity War, which are incredibly satisfying as ends to a story at some level, but they aren't particularly interesting films, Hmm. right? Pixel parades for sure, and I think up through here they still were kind of interesting films. I think Winter Soldier also accelerates
1: oh, that, very like much so. very much so, and and uh, that that in fact takes Cap's character and makes all the confusion, the ideological confusion, and puts him pits him against his handlers, and that is an important transformation that he has to go through. But he can't get there until he goes through this. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, I, I agree.
2: I, I like the movement with Cap through that. I think Winter Soldier is one of my, my, my favorites. It's You know, I can I can watch that in Three Days of the Condor back-to-back. Oh, <laughs> you
0: know, for sure, yeah. <laughs> <Truly>. <laughs> it's interesting. And now I'm curious, just from your perspective, like, how would you rank the uh, the four Avengers films and the three Captain America films? Like, do you have a sense as to, like, your favorite down to, like, what you'd find the least interesting? Um,
2: I, I I like... The first Avenger, I think,
0: is probably
2: um, the most thoughtful film of the bunch. Um, I think Joe Johnson did a wonderful job. Um, I really like the Winter Soldier. I think that the, the was that the Russo brothers, I think they did a a, a very good job there as well. Um, Civil War, I think, is terrible. i Ultron, Ultron is kind of a mess too. Mm-hmm. Endgame and Infinity War, they, you know, there, there was nothing absolutely surprising about them at all. Infinity War worked wonderfully for me because, you know, they gave Cap his happy ending mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they had those great manipulative moments, you know, Iron Man, and Black Widow. Right. Um, they're, so, they're
1: perfectly adrenal films.
2: Yeah. Yeah. In <laughs> you know, the same way that Armageddon, like, hits you in the right way in certain <laughs> right. ways. But you're, you're, it's not the kind of film you're going to nominate for an Oscar. Right. I, I I enjoyed Kenneth Branagh's Thor a lot. Yeah, um, Iron Man won was okay. I mean it was I mean, it was a great film. It was really fun. It was fun. I actually didn't hate Iron Man 2 in the same way most everybody seems to have. Um I'm having trouble watching anything after Infinity War. Wakanda Forever was
0: okay. I think Shang-Chi was wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's it is interesting though and I think that There are, I mean, there's going to be things that work and things that don't work in in pretty much all of these films. And I I think they're, you know, the the staying power may boil down sometimes to, um, you know, it might for some just be quippy lines and great action sequences. But I think some of them, like The Winter Soldier, which really stand out um, for me also, is because there's a little more going on with it and they're saying something a little more interesting there. And so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to getting to that one for sure.
2: Yeah, this is, I think this is a point I made earlier that the films that are about the characters more than about the heroes fighting each other yeah, are the ones that work. Iron Man. One is about a, a guy whose life is his life's work is shown to be a disaster in front of him and how he responds to that. Um, Thor one was all about, Hubris versus versus humility, um, which is what Thor was all about. Same
1: can be said for Doctor Strange.
2: Same can be said for Doctor Strange, and they they work when they are done at that level. The Infinity War and Endgame weren't really at that level. They were they were you know let's put the costumes on and go like CGI ourselves blind um, <laughs> with these these few poignant moments that work if you are embedded in the narrative. Yeah, right. Um, and so they are like true popcorn films that don't aspire to more. Um, I think that, that what worked best and got people involved with these characters was that these early films aspired to more. Yeah. Frankly, I think Avengers works. I think it works really well. I think it's an ideological muddle, but it's a very entertaining film and it draws us in very well, largely because we care about these films and Josh Whedon did a great job of melding these, these, like strong characters and strong egos together. I mean, he herded the cats well
0: heard of the cats well and there's there's a lot of uh strong structure for it and i suppose yeah. to a certain extent that leads me to um the next part of this this minute when we go to loki's lair because uh this gives us a chance to talk a little bit about the villain of our story and you know that's something that i mean we've been talking a lot about these heroes in the story but i'd love to get your sense of how loki works for you uh i mean obviously we had seen him in thor before but now we're getting him in a bigger scale he obviously was a key villain um, in the Avengers comics. Um, how does he play for you in the context of this film and the way that they set up his storyline?
2: Loki's one of those characters who, he's he's appealing because he's so impish, um, and Tom Hilston plays that impishness perfectly, but there is absolutely zero moral core to this character. He will sell anyone out at any time for any reason whatsoever, largely just because it's fun. Um, I mean, he's the god of mischief. He's just he doesn't care about anything else. Um, He'll screw over his brother. He'll screw over his mother. He'll screw over the earth. He does not care. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there's this implication here that he's doing this for power. It's not really for power. He's just doing it to do it. And Tom Hiddleston, I think, captures that, that, that sort of puckish sense of him that makes him appealing as well as that just complete and total amorality and disregard for anything else, aside from, yeah, this is, I'm just going to do this because I can.
0: Yeah, I think one of our previous guests described him in Dungeons & Dragons terms as chaotic evil. Like, he's just there, he just loves the chaos of of what he can do, you know, with, with any particular situation.
2: Which is, in, in a sense, right, if if we want to think about this in terms of dichotomy, it, it may be in part that we use Loki here that becomes big part of the problem for, the cinematic universe ideologically, because what is the opposite of chaos but order? Right? And order is not necessarily a good product of democratic equality. And something
1: does the the Batman exist without the Joker? Is the Batman's existence good for democratic equality? Not at all. Batman (laughs) is a
2: Batman is a is a fascist. There's just no question about it. Right. And in fact by by you know by the time we get to Ultron, right? Tony's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so uh, the presence of Loki as as the chief villain here, right, I, th- I think sort of pushes the films in that direction. But I think it also pushed the comic books in that direction too. Uh, th- the problem is, of course, he's such a, an appealing character. You want him to be redeemable and he never is.
1: Well, he never is until, until they, you know, they just did like at this point, they thought they knew what they had with Loki and Tom Hiddleston and practically his popularity transcended their, their intentions and they had to do something with this character to make him more than because they had to keep Hiddleston around.
2: Oh yeah. He's perfect as Loki. He really
1: is. And he actually, I think he as a performer transcends that himself, that he is able to deliver the complexity of the ultimate Loki that we get in a way that's still satisfying and, impish and troublesome and all of that, but that's down to him and certainly not the character that we introduce here
2: and he can wear that headdress so
0: and he, yes oh, and you oh, yes. don't
2: look at him and go really dude
0: <laughs> <laughs> he,
2: gets away with it.
0: he absolutely does and it looks so much better than his scepter generally ever does like it actually looks authentic whereas his scepter as we've talked about uh it looks a little plastic sometimes when he's holding it it looks like a, a prop <laughs> loki scepter by hasbro pulse exactly exactly <laughs> Uh, this this lair that they're in, they filmed it in under the Detroit Superior Bridge in the old viaduct in Cleveland, Ohio, where they were filming a number of things. Um It's an interesting location, I suppose. I It did make me wonder. I mean, this whole thing story. This is why you never want to spend too much time looking at timelines in the Marvel Wiki, because this entire thing is two days after the destruction of Pro- Project Pegasus. So they have had basically less than 48 hours to assemble. I don't know how he's getting all these people, where he's getting them. They look kind of military scientific. Did he go to a military base and, and mind control a whole bunch of people? Like the whole thing seems fairly strange to me, especially when you see the progress that Eric has made with whatever this, uh, you know, Tesseract device is that he's uh, building or basically rebuilding from, it looks very similar to what he had at Project Peg- Pegasus. Uh, The the scene plays like Loki's been busy. I do like that. But I I don't know, before we talk about um, Loki's little trip to Sanctuary, I mean, how does how does it play for the two of you as far as kind of getting a sense of what Loki's been up to?
2: I hadn't realized it
0: was only supposed to be two days. Uh, You know, again... Yeah, these these timelines. Yeah, that's why you never look at the timeline, man. Yeah. You never look at. I mean, the maybe timeline. he's been out
2: recruiting all these people beforehand and just came and got. You know. <laughs> well, that was <laughs> right. right give, little do you know, yeah. he zapped yeah. into
1: the thing in the <laughs> beginning, he was just coming from Boston. Like that's he, right. It, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I've just got a, It's just a
2: day trip. I'll be back with a couple guys. Exactly. You know. We'll pick up some equipment on the way at Radio Shack. <laughs>
0: That makes so much more sense now that he's already, he's already doing all this. He's already doing all this prep work. Location scouting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's had a lot of, a lot of prep that he's had to get ready. And and he's been, it's, it's like what you do on any project. You don't bring in your big money people until the last minute because you don't want them sitting around bored. Right? So he's got all of the foundation (laughs) ready. So as soon as Eric gets there, he already has everything he needs to get to work. That's 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 a smart uh, a smart strategist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He could take over Twitter. He could buy Twitter.
1: <laughs> um. It's possibly he has, it's, it's,
0: Twitter Twitter <laughs> by Loki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, so they're, they're busy. They're doing all sorts of stuff. Now, again, I don't fully understand exactly this whole thing, the way that he's using the scepter to mentally teleport himself to Sanctuary and around. But I, I guess that's what he's doing. And he's going there to have this conversation with the other. I don't know. I mean, is he going periodically to just do check-ins? Was there some, like, message that popped up from the other saying, hey, it's time to check in. We need to have a conversation. Like, I'm not exactly sure like how and why these things happen, but the other obviously is ready to have this conversation and is there. And weirdly, when we cut to the shot of him or when we see him on sanctuary, we see Loki on sanctuary and we're looking at the other, it looks like we're only seeing his top half. And it really throws me every time I look at this particular minute. And after this, like at the very end of this minute, we got like a frame or two where we see a different angle, and we see like he's behind a rock outcropping or something, but it doesn't make any sense in this shot at all. It looks like we're seeing half of a body. Does I mean, how does this play? Does this work at all for either of you? Because I really struggle every time I watch this moment.
2: Uh, did did Loki go? Did Loki like choose to go, or was Loki like summoned and taken there? Yeah, through the set? I'm. I. I was. I've always been a little confused about that. This is like you know you got called. You're getting called to the principal's office. You know, you're not <laughs> moving fast enough, dude. Yeah. Right. That's an infraction. You're going to have to stay detention. Right. And he's arguing against it. It, it. It's. It's a weird thing. Are they really at a place, or is this just sort of a place where both of them meet?
1: It's a very strange shot too, because we pivot around Loki sitting in the in Detroit. And then we see Loki in his full dress walk in front of (laughs) seated Loki to have the conversation. It's very strange. It's very strange. He's 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 uh, visualizing the conversation that they're having.
0: Yeah, right. Like he's mentally projecting himself, I guess. Is that what we're supposed to take from this? I like the
1: idea that he's summoned. I like that idea. Like the like he's sitting there in Detroit, and the and the scepter just starts to glow, and it's like, oh crap! I can't flush this call. Like <laughs> he's he has to take it. Yeah,
2: yeah. The president of Hasbro needs to talk to him. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it clearly looks like when you when you watch Hiddleston like perform it, it looks like he's mentally like doing something because as he's sitting there, like the scepter starts to glow and he, it's almost like he takes this big deep breath and like stretches his neck back and closes his eyes. And then I guess that's the visual of us seeing him mentally projecting himself across time and space to get to sanctuary where he sees the other weird thing about this is, you know, as he appears as the, as Loki in his full regalia appears, he looks like twice the size of the other. Like the other looks like a tiny, like a Jawa, is really what he yeah, looks it's, like.
1: It's, it, it is. It's a full Gandalf Frodo kind of a thing. Like they're just, they're, it's, they're forced perspectiving it and it's not great.
0: Yeah. I guess, I mean, we're 30 minutes into the film. I guess this is really. A reminder to say the Chitauri again, just to remind us, oh, yeah, <laughs> if you we're talking about something about. at the start of this movie. I can't remember exactly what they are, but there's something out there that I'm supposed to remember. And that's, that's what this that's
1: is. Joss Whedon saying, you guys, I know you've already forgotten that opening scene yeah. because it was nonsense. You what you really remember is the destruction of the building. And we're going to take you back there just one more time. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're bad guys. You need a bad guy moment to remind you there are bad guys beyond Loki. It's a it's a plot point. It's a it's a just a
0: right. yeah. What do you think of the Chitauri? Do you as far as villains, kind of a, an army? Does it work for you?
2: you, you they were um, in the I can't remember, it was the late nineties, early two thousands. Marvel started this line called the Ultimate Line. Yeah, um, which they were retelling a lot of their old stories in new ways. This is where Nick Fury became black with an eye patch. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's where the Chitari showed up. They never existed before then. Um, I think they were supposed to be like the stand-in for the Kree, but we still have the Kree. They they never really seemed all that. I mean, what's their intention? You know, they're they're minions. Um, They they just strike me as minions. Um, But there's a lot of them, and they're dangerous minions, so that's okay.
0: Uh, Yeah, and I guess that's what we get from them, right?
2: (laughs) Right, because what it turns out is that they're not the ones we really worry about. Thanos is the one yeah. who is back there. Yeah, um, who we catch a glimpse of at the
0: end of the film. It just boils down to our villain needs a, a massive army to invade with, and so hey, let's give them these things. And you know, it, it, it definitely comes across that way in this film. And it is army for hire, and the name yeah. Urakai was taken, and so <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Yep. Yeah. Well, that, and that's pretty much where we end this minute. Uh, Loki has his little pitch to the other as far as, um, oh, no, no, it's all good. Let them goad themselves. I will lead them in a glorious battle. It's his way of just saying, no, 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 I've totally got this. It's all good. It's all good. And, uh, then that's where the minute ends. So, well, I guess that's pretty much it for, uh, this minute and this week, but, um, um matthew it has been a thrill chatting with you uh you'll be back later in the season i, I i'm glad that we had a chance to catch up with you about uh, this minute and earlier in uh, the week so thank you so much so much for joining us
2: oh it's been a pleasure i love coming on and talking about this these movies with you guys so
0: yeah well tell us uh tell everybody again about where they can track you down and uh and read some of the stuff that you've been working on well you can still find my book
2: secret identity crisis uh comic books and the unmasking of the cold war uh at amazon and other places um you can probably find it really cheap if you want to buy it used or remaindered um i have some articles coming out uh, one recently in the journal of popular culture on jack kirby and his work in the uh, late 60s and early
0: 70s from the fantastic four through the eternals so that's what i've been working on you know and watching movies well make sure you uh share us uh, share that link with us when you have that available we'll make sure to share it out with everybody and uh then we'll chat with you later in the season so again thank you so much we appreciate it and uh pete thanks as always oh andy next week i hope we do a whole week on the six fingered man <laughs> until next time true believers